Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Welcome everyone to Looking Outside. Today we are exploring coalitions of change with someone who understands how to recognize the shifts in the future landscape and can generate a powerful group of operators to act against them. A huge welcome to the show to the incredibly inspiring Kat Tully. Hey Kat. Hi Joe. We might just start with you and doing a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Thanks, Joe. It's so lovely to be able to chat to you and also all your listeners. Congratulations on the podcast. It's really great to, to see people that kind of reach out to different sectors and different countries to talk about the importance of, of looking outside and looking at the environmental context and thinking about what we can do differently in a world of change. So a little bit about myself. So my name is Katerina Isabel Maria Tully. I am a bit of a mongrel. Um, I'm a, a child of immigrants, if you like. My mum is Portuguese. My dad's side was from Ireland. My grandmother was an East End London Cockney. And I think that's very much shaped who I am. I'm a little bit inquisitive, a little bit contrarian, but very and also very privileged having come from backgrounds where you just always look at outside and explore the differences in culture. And I think that's really shaped who I am. So I, I've been a bit of a butterfly up until I set up the School of International Futures 12 years ago, moving from the private sector with Procter & Gamble uh, to doing a lot of work in the development sector, which was extremely important and formative for me across Africa and the Middle East and Central Asia, and then worked in the UK government in particular for the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then in the Foreign Office policy planning staff but really kind of decided to set up the School of International Futures because there, you know, I realised that there, there was no lack of insight about the future. It wasn't a supply side issue. There's lots of interesting insights about what might happen. The big gap was how do senior decision makers and communities use those insights to make possible change today? And in particular, who do they go to to look outside, if you like, you know, Whose voices do they engage with in that process and take seriously as evidence about what's actually going on? And that that felt as if it needed a lot of focus and a lot of support. And so over the past 12 years, the School of International Futures, which is now, I think, about 40 of us in this kind of affiliation and network in about 16 countries around the world, that's what we focus on. So that's a little bit about where I come from and, and my interest in, in looking outside. So, so fascinating and such a unique background that you have and, and diverse experience set. So you mentioned a few things in there is like policy planning. So public, private, working from the private side, obviously starting your own company, mix of backgrounds from your family, travel all across the world and working with different markets. Is that a very proactive thing that you do when you try to en just engage with a diverse and broad set of experiences and sort of stretch yourself into lots of different areas? Or does it come sort of naturally by default? Isn't it always a combination of both, I think? I think inquisitiveness and leaning towards heterogeneity, I think, is is it can be a predisposition. I think there's some interesting evidence that shows that that, you know, there are people who 
have preferences towards homogeneity and some who have preferences towards heterogeneity. So I, I do think that people kind of have a preference sometimes, and I'm certainly someone that likes mixing things up. But I think, as always with everything, it's also a very much a learned behaviour because of the value of knowing that the interesting things comes from the liminal space between trends. It's about comparing different markets. It's about understanding the growth curves of different companies and what can you learn from them. It's about comparing what happens in different cultures. And it's about having structured ways of actually encouraging you to kind of reflect on what your blind spots might be. What's an area that you've ventured into where you're, you maybe weren't uncomfortable, but it was an area that was quite sort of new and, and pushed you to think differently? I think discomfort <laughs> and newness actually comes with the territory of the work that we do. I think it becomes easier over time. But I mean, for example, we, we've just been doing some work on organised crime, on the future of organised crime, and that can be really challenging to kind of try and think about, you know, what are the motivations involved? You know, what what might happen in the future with new synthetic biology innovations and leaning into the fact that when you look in the past, most innovations have actually often been adopted by organised crime interests in order to take advantage in unregulated areas, whether that's drugs, whether that's, you know, new medical, uh, biomedical innovations, uh, whether it's even environmental standards and, you know, arbitraging between different regulation regimes. So it, it can be quite uncomfortable to kind of really change the way that you see the world and say, oh, it's really good to introduce environmental regulations and then having to kind of put yourself in the situation and go, well, actually, what new incentives might this create in the future? What are some of the second or third or fourth order impacts, as Paul Sappho always says, the economic consequences, the social and the political consequences of this new technological change. And, and sometimes that kind of, that requires you to think slightly differently and adeptly and agilely and empathetically from different perspectives. So sometimes people ask me tangibly, like, what is it that I can do as someone that's working in a business or a government that actually can bring in some of these insights in a tangible way. And I guess I, I, I think, depending on where you are in the organisation, I think you've got a few ideas. One of them is when designing policies or decisions, or if you're sitting on a board, is to, when you're making these big decisions, just asking, is this intergenerationally fair? So who is benefiting and who's losing out and actually doing an assessment? And there's a tool that you can use for that. I think it's also about, as a leader, telling the story of your organization's past, present and into the future, but acknowledging that although you may need to kind of, you hold the story and tell it on behalf of others, that what that future story bit is actually really needs to come from others. And that involves you mandating the process <laughs> and then shutting up and listening to what other people have said as you weave that story together. And then thirdly, I think it's about kind of knowing that sources of information, and this is back to Jim Data's quote, which I really love, which is any useful idea about the future has to be at first sight appear ridiculous. 
and, and it's about that kind of discomfort that we kind of started off with at the beginning of our of our talk conversation, which is that things that are really different are going to feel very alien and a way of shutting that down or dealing with that is by kind of just rejecting it. And I think understanding as a leader that actually that's when you need to overcome your impulse to kind of go, that's just ridiculous. And actually going, okay, I'm going to validate that or provide cover because challenging assumptions and and well-held facts and you can't see me but I am putting the word facts in inverted commas about the present that's what's really necessary in a world of volatility and uncertainty and that's your role as a leader wherever you are in the organization so all of these changes require you to kind of think things through quite carefully and connect to different people with different perspectives and and bring that together Yes. And the connecting different people and perspectives is something that we're going to get into in a second. I'd love to start by asking you how you conceptualize change for people who are not living and breathing it like you and I, and obviously others in the field are. And particularly when you're talking about not just what's happening today that people can see that's maybe more comfortable, but the third and fourth order changes that you were mentioning there, how do you make it real? I think when you work in strategic foresight, you you start getting used to people going, what? What do you do exactly? <laughs> and then when you try to explain, their eyes roll back into their head and they get a little bit bored. So there's something really interesting about the endeavour of looking outside and looking at the horizon and, and trying to kind of understand that in a world of uncertainty, the future is going to be different today. But that's a huge opportunity as well as requiring us to kind of think quite differently about what we're doing as an organization it means constant you know challenging of our assumptions and i think one of the ways that i therefore kind of talk about our endeavor which is this process of looking at the future is that you can compare there's two kind of traditions i think in our in our field which is all about you know looking at at the future to, to make better things possible today and one of them is as if it's it's a crystal ball that what you're trying to do is you're measuring the, the drivers of change around you. You're kind of trying to predict technology. And this can be an endeavor that you're more or less right about. You know, this is Philip Tetlock's book on super forecasting. You know, to what extent are you correct at doing this? And or you can see the endeavor of, of thinking about the future as being like a mirror where what you're doing is you're exploring the world around you, tapping into the insight from William Gibson's quote, which is that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Tapping into the power of that statement, which is that actually trends and changes are actually here in the present, embedded, that there are both the past and the future here. And what you're doing is you're looking for it and you tend to go to the periphery and different communities to, to look into that. And that's, I think, very much the kind of approach that, that we take, which is that actually the endeavour is as decision makers to kind of listen because we're, we, we're very much embedded in the present, but it's about seeking those signals of change in the communities around us and the insights from young people from women, from different indigenous communities, 
from you know innovative communities who are already exploring and way ahead of us 20 30 40 years ahead of us in exploring the adoption of technology and what that means for us today so i think that's that's part of our endeavor is to is to look for those communities and connect to them just you know you'd asked me before about looking for a diversity of points of view and I, and and the the reminder of philip tetlock actually kind of Brought that, when I mentioned that, brought that to mind, which is that Isaiah Berlin's discussion of, you know, do, what kind of mental models do you have in your head? Are you a, a tortoise? Do you have a very clear mental model of how the world works? Or are you a fox? Do you have lots of different ways of explaining the phenomenon around you? And I think in the work that we do, we have to be foxes and we have to talk to lots of different communities to see how they think about the world and an example that we've done that in very well I think is in some of the intergenerational fairness assessment work where we're trying to we went to different communities to kind of say how do you think about how to measure things as they change into the future so let's talk to the actuarial scientists to the insurance community because they model the future let's talk to the kind of complex systems thinkers to think about how they think about the future let's talk to indigenous communities to see about their seventh generation principles and other metaphors that they use to think about the future let's talk to economists about natural capital valuation so these are all different ways of thinking about how do you structure understanding that you know, now you're having an impact on the future and that you should actually incorporate the cost of what you're doing onto future generations and reflect that in today's decisions. But all these different communities just have very, very different ways of doing that. And I think the, the answer is is somewhere in between all of them and being informed by those very, very different worldviews. Mm, and I love the idea of bringing all of that knowledge together and synthesizing it or even bringing those communities together. In business, I think that that's where maybe some of the disconnect sometimes happens is when you go out and you speak to, say, early adopters or, you know, um, fringe innovators or engineers. And that in itself, standalone, can be taken as being very niche, a niche view of the world. Like that's only relevant for them. That's not relevant for the mass and for the scalable kind of innovation that we're looking at. Whereas what you're doing is sort of what you're saying before, it's sort of clashing, contrasting, compounding, I guess, those perspectives to make your work more robust and more well-rounded. So is that is that a part of it? Am I understanding that right, that you do bring them together? Absolutely. And I think that that's the value is, is in, in bringing people together and helping them have conversations. And the magic happens when there are effective exchanges and dialogues between them. And this is a journey that we've kind of been on over the past few years, which is kind of really understanding that if you just plonk a philosopher in front of a bunch of economists or an artist in front of engineers, there's going to be a big culture clash. And although they potentially would have huge amounts to contribute to each other, it's really difficult to make that connection. Similarly, young people, Generation Z, Generation Alpha, and the way that they see the world have got huge amounts of value to add to CEOs, (laughs) innovation units in businesses. However, how do you kind of connect and help 
incumbents, really, people like you and me who are doing our jobs in the here and the now, realise that the, the insight that they have about the future is actually really useful data. And I think the three horizons approach that Tony Hodgkin kind of uses, I think, is a very powerful way of bringing different groups together to realise that working together, they can collectively come up with something very powerful. And the Three Horizons basically helps you think about how change happens. So you have the incumbents in Horizon 1, who are the people who are dominant in the institutions and the ways of of running the economy in the present. You know, we're the doctors, we're the, the businesses, we're running businesses and, and, and governments and civil society groups in a world where it is a carbon-based economy. And we do have gas and petrol-guzzling cars that get us from A to B. Now, Horizon 3 actors are the visionaries that can help us think about what the kind of status quo of a world where we're in a post-carbon economy and perhaps we have driverless electric vehicles. And that, of course, requires, you know, not just different manufacturing or or production capabilities but it'll probably and you know we'll be buying different kind of ways of mobility uh, of purchasing mobility getting to work and traveling around to see friends but probably has impacts on how our cities are designed and actually certainly we'll need different kinds of insurance and legal frameworks because you know as you know how do we actually engage with the fact that there'll be different responsibilities should accidents happen, but also we'll need different logistics and value chains and all these different things around them. And so what you've got in Horizon 2 is the, the kind of entrepreneurs and the weak signals of, of the new startups and the new kind of conversations about new legal frameworks, uh, perhaps emerging new governance or laws or internationally or, or, or locally evidence of of cities and new companies sharing information that that start indicating what the future might look like and and those are the entrepreneurs if you like and i think the really you know you get powerful change when you design processes that bring those three actors together so early adopters amongst incumbents who can then seed the insights to the rest of the organizations entrepreneurs and you know, the visionaries. And that's not necessarily an easy task to do, but it's a very powerful framework with which to kind of talk to each type of actor and say, this is why it's quite difficult for you to talk across. Sometimes we feel as if we're talking across purposes because we're using different language and have different Mm. ways of seeing the world. But the real value is when people come together and, and talk this through. Now, insights about the future from those visionaries that you're talking about, the the people who come along with interesting ideas, the the, the fringe spotters, that's how you you kind of help translate the insights from them into the the business, into governments, and you know that that can happen both. Been doing that, let's say you can do that at a sector level, like the nuclear counter proliferation sector, who have been really thinking about what does the future of trying to come to a nuclear weapon-free world, all the way through to doing that in in businesses like uh, energy change and the energy transition. 
And it's really powerful to give a voice to those Horizon 3 operators, the, those people that are either on the fringes or maybe they're the, the youth who are going to be living with and, and experiencing, you know, maybe a certain sense of trepidation about the future. But it makes me think then the role of the Horizon 2 operator, the middleman or the fox, as you said, these foresight people or people who are in a similar position where they can translate what is that Horizon 1 need that the business has in, in the immediacy today with what is that fringe thing that's coming that we're not talking about. That role in the Horizon 2 seems like it's really critical. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. And this is a, a, a quote that Graham Lester introduced to me, and I think it's from Schumacher, but it, it, it says something along the lines of that we are both midwife to the new, but also hospice carers to the old. And that kind of Janus approach is a really powerful one. It's one of translation. It's one of integration. And, you know, if Futures and Foresight has a superpower to help translate and create change today, which I, I think it, there's that wonderful, I think it's Gaston Berger quote, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, our field, our, our work, our discipline is about helping people reperceive the present. So if that's what we're doing, then we need to bring love to the endeavour and care and compassion, because especially in a time of volatility and uncertainty, we all just basically knuckle down into the here and the now, and we kind of just bed down deeply into our identities and into our groups, and the change can feel overwhelming and fearful because it can be about losing our, our handrail. One of the key skills and practices of us that are in this second horizon is not very much not the tools and the techniques, but very much the softer empathy, emotional intelligence skills, but also hard skills around understanding and analyzing power and also how to weave coalitions for change. And we're realizing that those are all very tangible, practical skills that are often invisible. This practice is obviously often not really recognized, but um, it's incredibly important. The role of the Horizon 2 operator then is a really challenging one. Couldn't agree more, obviously. And I really like what you said that it requires, um, you know, an, a level of compassion. I think also compassion, obviously, for what's happening on the fringes, a recognition of the change that's happening with young people and with maybe some of the more vulnerable, vulnerable parts of the world that are being impacted, but also compassion with Horizon 1 operators. So... I've seen, you know, so many Horizon 2 operators that either lean, like they become an extension of Horizon 1 or they become an extension of Horizon 3 and they're not really doing an effective job of being that compassionate weaver of the two horizons together. So how do you, how do you foster that kind of compassion? We have um, a group of next generation foresight practitioners, about 600 of them from about 88 different countries. And uh, the reason why I mention this is because we've been having a, a WhatsApp chat just last night on this very topic. What's interesting is that 
there are different emerging fields that help us understand how individuals and also groups of individuals respond at a time of loss. You know, how to think about the kind of heuristics that we tend to to, to fall into, whether it's, you know, helping us a change or address our kind of present bias or loss aversion as individuals, all the way through to kind of thinking about, you know, social movements and how change happens and how you actually often only need about 18% of the people to kind of think a new way before there's a tipping point across society where, and, you know, how do you also harness the new network weaving field, which has been around for about 10 years, which talks about how do you actually build coalitions of different types of actors in a field, for example, the one man or the one woman influencer with the civil society organization and the frontline community group and the ministry working, you know, let's say that they all care about women's reproductive rights. You know, how do you bring a community of very different actors who all care about the same thing and want to work together towards more or less a common purpose, but there's no command and control. They're not an organisation. You can't kind of give them the incentives that you normally would do in a, in a business to kind of collaborate. So what does it mean to kind of weave people together? And I, I think that that kind of link between network weaving and futures and foresight and together with an un, a growing understanding of different deliberative and participatory techniques and, and understanding, you know, the policy, power, bringing all those together makes for a very, very powerful practice indeed. But I think it, we are in the process of field building. I think we're trying to kind of develop and put words on kind of practical practices that we're all developing and that are emerging that help us in a time of uncertainty where, as I said, you know, people can double down on their assumptions because they're scared of losing power. Actually, what's a kind way of, of connecting, empathizing, listening, understanding where people are, and then weaving this coalition of change together across different horizons for change and making the case. But, you know, a lot of, as I said, a lot of this work is, is invisible. It's about listening, active listening. It's about really understanding the environments people come from and then very, very carefully designing spaces where once you've kind of engaged with different people and bring them together, they can then come together for a generative and wonderful conversation, challenging but also constructive, when in fact often those conversations can be quite conflictual otherwise. And, and there's so much in what you said there, which I think is counter to maybe the image that foresight has or even strategy has, which is all about confidence and a certain level of not elitism, but along those same lines where we have something figured out that the rest of the company or the world doesn't. Like we know, some, we know a hidden <laughs> secret. You said, you know, words like listening, compassion, care. I mean, that those aren't traditionally things that are said about foresight. And there's something else that you said um, recently in an article about sustainability, which is showing emotional vulnerability. Do you feel like we need more of that from the field and from our senior leaders? 
Absolutely. I mean, we should do, right? <laughs> we are mm-hmm. facing a, a decade of turbulence. Martin Rees thinks that there's a good 50% chance that we don't survive as a, as a race the, the century. And what got us here is absolutely not going to get us there in terms of positive outcomes. So I, I think that increasingly leaders, whether CEOs, and there's been a big churn at the top, CEOs and political some political leaders are, are acknowledging that, that they are being brought in to lead through a time of transition, which means that they need different kinds of tools and approaches that are much more about an emergent strategic approach than leading from the top. Now, talking of change taking a long time, I mean, Henry Mintzberg's emergent strategy very good paper came out in 1987. So none of this is rocket science, right? Um, Donella Meadows, you know, wrote beautifully the the kind of principles for systems change, you know, from the 70s to the 90s. So none of this is massively new. But I think what is different is that we've now hit a tipping point where the insights from this field are kind of being taken up and people are like, okay, yes, now we really get it. We do need to understand what to do, you know, how to be leaders in a time of uncertainty, which means actually holding that uncertainty and listening and being a service leader in service rather than saying that you've got the answer. And there's lots of different ways in which that can become manifest. And there's a huge number of ways in which people have been talking about this for a real, really long time. And, you know, any number of case studies that I can tell you about, you know, good organisations or businesses or governments who have become, who were prepared for change, whether that's Fekas Sabejma from DSM, who basically had moved his company, Dutch company, out of petrochemicals and plastics and into vitamins and, and, and nutrition all the way through to kind of, you know, the Gulbenkian Foundation, which kind of divested itself of hydrocarbons and just gave a kind of annual award to Greta Thunberg two years ago, all the way through to different organisations like Canterbury Health Authority in New Zealand, near where I am at the moment, who basically decided to be prepared and think about the future because they were facing all sorts of challenges and a broken health system, but actually they realised that by thinking about the 2030s, 2025 future, this was in 2010, they did that, they actually, when the earthquakes happened a year later, they were massively more prepared. So I think there's something about acknowledging that that leaders have to kind of be leaders for future generations, as 28% Mm. of them now say. How do you as a leader bring your organization along with you and get that change to happen is, I think, the million-dollar question. And why, I think, back to your kind of point about vulnerability and change and leadership, it's like you can know what the right answer is, but have you actually got everybody on board with you is a very different question. And that's not about charisma. That's about the process of, uh, of weaving and bringing people together. Yeah, definitely. And and weaving together the voices of the youth and the future generations, like you said. So there's something that you mentioned before about be, the importance of being taken seriously, which I think would be a key lever of instigating change or, or actually actioning change. 
And you've done so much amazing work in that field in bringing youth into the foresight practice and into collaboration sessions and those coalitions of change. Some examples are community futures that that you've established and the our next gen group slash awards, which is incredible. So how do you bring them in in a way where they are taken seriously? I'd add to that list some of the intergenerational fairness work that we've done. So holding spaces and dialogues for bringing different generations together with space, by the way, inspired by the Japanese futures design movement to actually have space to think about what unborn generations think about issues as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, this is all incredibly important and even more so because I think tokenism is on the rise you know, foresight is being adopted increasingly. People are like, yes, we need to think about the future. But then they're not really using it to kind of challenging their own assumptions. And it's done as a kind of performative activity rather than one that people are really prepared to kind of go, actually, this means that we're going to have to break things and change things before the crisis happens, actually. And that can because it are really difficult. So the commitment to, to act on these signals of change and behaviours is the million-dollar question. But how do you design spaces and how do you bring in young people's voices into conversations? And when I say young people, that actually is effectively a proxy for just diversity of opinion and different ways of... And because you can have as, you know, when you're doing policy design, let's say, And one of the examples that you you were talking about was national strategy for next generations, which is, you know, the UK is going through a lot of change, as many countries are. There is a kind of national planning process at the centre of the UK government called the Integrated Review that looks out 10 years and looks about what does the UK want to be in the world and how, what the changes that might happen externally and how might the UK, you know, use its wonderful assets to, to position itself to support, you know, both global well-being and prosperity and stability, but also its own position. Now, this is this feels like a familiar strategy process, right? Um, the, <laughs> the units are different. Sometimes you're doing it for business, sometimes you're doing it civil society, sometimes you're actually mm-hmm. doing it for a country. But, like, I hope this feels like a familiar endeavour. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how do you open that up so you have different voices in the room? So the people who are going to be leaders in 25 years are also happy helping to to inform this process and so there you've got you know a lot of youth engagement has become tokenistic as I think that uh, especially at the international level and so how you know strategic foresight and ways of having structured conversations about well what are the drivers of change how and then what are the implications of them so emerging technology what's that going to do to our families if we regulate synthetic biology in a certain way, what does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for the, how we live our, our lives? What are some of the economic implications? Let's think about distributed autonomous organisations. What might it mean to actually have, let's say, if we want to be really uh, radical, all these kind of non-state people who don't who don't have a state and don't have nationality? What would mean to actually have a kind of bit nation that represents their interests you know like so Mm. you can get huge amounts of innovative interesting insights from engaging in particular with young people on some of those really important questions and quite frankly if you don't get those 
voices in the room. We're talking about 2030 and we're talking about 2040, but quite frankly, it's really just an extension of 2022. And so processes by actively reaching out and getting young people and different people's perspectives in the room, you can really get different interesting insights. But that is a task not just of convening, designing processes and helping people realise that evidence or insights about the future can be really powerful when they come from unexpected voices. But then you need to then work with, in this case, for example, civil servants and politicians to help them realise how they can actually listen and engage and get those insights and act on them. And so that's about kind of, well, what are the kind of policy labs or the docking points into the, the current bureaucracies, into the current companies that, you know, is it into the innovation space? Is it about helping people scan better? Is it about, you know, testing and developing different scenarios? Is it about kind of getting people to feedback on, you know, different ideas and different policies and stress test them? Is it about, you know, and this is something that we're, we're doing quite a lot on, doing an intergenerational fairness assessment. So when people are coming up with new ideas to actually then go, well, actually, this new policy that we want to take, let's say, whether it's about transforming social care or whether it's about a major new environmental measure, or maybe it's about changing housing policy or pensions policy, you can ask the question, who's benefiting and who's paying for it? in terms of different generations alive now and in the future. That's so powerful in bringing that into the the planning process and actually then turning that into something that you can feed into your strategies. You can use that with the wooden tunneling and backcasting, you know, taking mm. different scenarios and going, okay, how do we think that our that policy would work in 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 those different futures? Or what might be early warning signals of of going towards this future that we don't want to happen, but might have to be prepared for? And what are the kind of contingency plans that might work for different types of people in those futures? So these are all kind of very powerful ways of very tangibly getting different people's perspectives into the room. Yeah, definitely. And breaking some things, as you say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Kat, I think that you're doing amazing things and getting commitment against change that we want to see, obviously, but also that we need to see um, and doing that through bringing together, like you said, unexpected voices and that vulnerability. One last question for you is what your go-to is when you're trying to push yourself to get that kind of broad, diverse, maybe a little bit uncomfortable perspective and look outside. So I, I go to the Next Generation Foresight Practitioners Network. So every country I go to, there are amazing young change agents who are using futures approaches to challenge the status quo and to be brave and to kind of work with their communities to imagine both better futures, but also kind of really raise the alarm that if we don't change, then we're sleepwalking into some real problems that they're going to have to deal with. And they're very, very conscious of that and so I I always reach out and listen to them I hope that this might be a resource that your listeners can reach out to and tap into because as I said it's about 600 to 700 people in 90 different countries they're amazing when they get together either across the topics that you know they care about or when you bring them together across countries and across regions but harnessing that power 
and, and, and those insights and an understanding of, of what's going on is, is very powerful indeed. Yeah, definitely. And we'll add a link to that into the show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. I absolutely will be. So thank you for that and for sharing all of your, your knowledge with us, Kat, and coming on the show. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Many thanks for all the work that you do. I know that you do a fantastic job reaching out yourself, inviting different voices in and then bringing them together. That's a really incredibly important role that you play. So thank you. Kat has a wealth of experience in driving coalitions that make tangible impact and this only scratched the surface. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow and share the show. Thank you for listening and keep looking outside. Thank you.